0: This Cap Times podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Learn more at exactsciences.com.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Live from Cap Time's Idea Fest. This is a podcast bringing you some of the conversations from this year's Idea Fest, a two day event at the University of Wisconsin Madison that brought together politicians, artists, activists, community leaders, and others to talk about the big issues shaping our community, our state, and beyond. Today, the next chapter for youth justice in Wisconsin state Capitol reporter Brianna Riley led a conversation at IdeaFest all about juvenile justice as it stands in the state in 2019. The conversation talked about the impending closure of the Lincoln Hills and Copper Lakes detention facilities, the current changes that are happening in Wisconsin's juvenile justice system. And the distinction between reform versus totally reshaping how we think about youth in prisons. I'll let Brianna take things away from here and introduce the panelists who are on this talk. Enjoy!
2: Thank you all for, again, for coming and participating in this conversation. And now let's introduce our panelists. Um, We're fortunate to be joined this morning by Tracy Benson, Charlene Moore, and Erica Nelson. I'm going to have them all introduce themselves and actually give us some insight about why they're passionate about the criminal justice uh, system and issues themselves. Let's start with Tracy,
3: please, if that's Okay. Good morning, everyone. Uh, My name is Tracy Benson, and I'm the director of the Community Justice Network for Youth. Um, So I'm the director of a national network of about 125 community-based organizations across about 20, 21 different states that work with kids and families that are impacted by the youth justice system. So we focus on youth of color, youth and families of color, and racial and ethnic disparities. Um, It's great to be here. I got my start as a youth and community organizer, and I found, um, just from my own experiences, and especially the young folk that we were working with, that um, they were getting a reasonable contact with police um, and um, also getting um, put on a a track to be pushed out of school and and into the justice system. And so, um, you know, we've lost youth organizers to the system, um, to gun violence. Um, We've buried too many young people. And so um, my passion from this work comes more out of necessity um, and survival for the folks that um, I consider family and friends. So it's great to be here.
0: Good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Charlene Moore, and um, I kind of wear two different hats. Number one, thank you all so much for coming out to this 8 a.m. panel. I barely made it this morning. Um, but I'm so thankful to be here and for um, this opportunity to um, share our work. Um, again, my name is Charlene Moore, and wear two different hats Um, Started a youth leadership organization um, called Urban Underground, which is a youth leadership organization um, focused on activism and organizing. Young people um, organize around issues related to health, education, criminal justice, and public safety. And that organization started about um, it, um, probably about nineteen years ago, um, and that was really when I um, connected with Tracy uh, was just around the time that we were organizing around um, school to prison pipeline sort of work and cops out of school and so you know fast forward nineteen years later um, A lot has happened in the state of Wisconsin, and particularly in the city of Milwaukee. Uh, And with the different spaces I've been allowed um, to be a part of, youth justice kept coming up time and time again. And there weren't a lot of advocates, particularly in Milwaukee, that was focused on the youth side. Uh, There were a lot of advocates focused on the adult um, and reforming the adult system, but there weren 't many that was focusing on young people, so we really so we took up the charge and we formed what is now Youth Justice Milwaukee, um, which is a broad based campaign uh, focused on uh, just bottom line closing down youth prisons and um, fighting for and advocating for alternatives for young people and so that has led us to our work today, as well as the many partners. Um, that we've come to know Erica with Kids Forward um, and many other partners um, throughout the country.
4: Great. All right, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Erica Nelson, and I um, am with the organization Kids Forward, which is formerly the Wisconsin Council on Children and Families. Uh, I run a project uh, called Race to Equity that uh, initially looked at uh, racial disparities between African Americans and whites in uh, Dane County. And in part uh, of that um, research and that advocacy to increase racial equity uh, here locally, um, there there was a look both at uh, across-the-board domains, and juvenile justice was one of them. And uh, both in Dane County, Madison, and the state of Wisconsin, racial disparities within the juvenile justice system or the youth justice system are extraordinary within uh, this state. And so when you're thinking about racial equity, um, I think it's important not just to look with respect to school outcomes or economic well-being, but oftentimes deep end systems like the juvenile justice system and the child welfare system are sort of the end of a pipeline in which um, inequities have sort of piled up. And so they're very stark once they get to the deep end system. So I believe that you can't do racial equity work without also looking at reforming the systems. Um, and then for myself, um, more personally with respect to, um, uh, juvenile justice and youth justice, I spent time in my other career in New York City in the child welfare system and advocating on behalf of parents to have their children, um, either stay with them and keep them out of foster care, or if they were already in foster care, bring them home as, um, soon as possible. And... The child welfare system is often a feeder itself into the juvenile justice system, and so there's a lot of uh, intersection and crossover between the two, and oftentimes, like the child welfare system, the, the children that are in the child welfare system and the children that are in the a juvenile justice system, um, the, the circumstances that have them in those spaces are really rooted in um, trauma and rooted in crisis that is not sort of the doing of the youth, but is larger structural and societal issues that we need to address. So that's partly where I also come to this work.
2: Thank you all. Uh, Just to kind of lay out the roadmap here, we're going to talk in three sections about this issue. First, we're going to kind of give an overview of where we're at here in Wisconsin. Second, where we're going. And third, where the panelists think we should be going in in Wisconsin to tackle this issue. So where we're at, I'm just going to give kind of a brief overview because there's been a lot going on here in Wisconsin over the last two years. Um, So to set the scene, the state is currently operating two youth prisons in Irma, the Lincoln Hills school, School for Boys, and the Copper Lake School for Girls. There's been a lot of scrutiny over the practices there, allegations of staff staff abuse reviews documenting the use of pepper spray and strip searches and a years-long criminal investigation that just wrapped up this spring and resulted in no charges in the midst of all this lawmakers last year under former republican governor scott walker passed a bipartisan bill to close the state's youth prisons in 2021 and replace them with regional facilities to house youth inmates so with that backdrop and before we dive a little more deeply into this topic, I just want to turn to Erica and ask, this is a very hard task, so I appreciate you taking this on, but can you first give us a sense of the makeup of these youth prisons? Who's there now? What brought them there? What parts of the state are they from? How long do they spend in these facilities?
4: Okay, I think I
2: can answer some of those questions.
4: There are a lot of sort of numbers based. But one I'd like to um, start in part to sort of describe where the juvenile justice system has been a little bit over the last three decades in the state of Wisconsin, because I think that's really important. Um, uh, During the 90s and sort of the super predator era, there was a huge number of youth going into the juvenile justice system, secure facilities, detention, and the like. And as a result of sort of conscientious reforms that the Burns Institute and others um, and Charlene and Urban Underground and folks have been participating in, the the youth involved in the system, and in particular in secure detention like Lincoln Hills and Copper Lake, has actually decreased significantly over the last three decades. Um, In many cases... um, you know, we've we went from being one of the you know worst states for juvenile justice in terms of overall numbers to one of uh, making significant progress. However, what is absolutely key is to recognize that um, the disparities have not improved over, from 2003 to 2013. In fact, the reflection of youth of color has either remained the same or increased. So, the rate at which white youth are of um, av- Um, getting less involved in the system is not happening as quick for um, African-American and Native youth in particular. Um, So that brings us to the point of who's there and where they're from. Um, And if you look at uh, Lincoln Hills School for Boys, I don't know the most recent numbers, um, but I'm guessing maybe around 100 and some overall. But But the majority are from Milwaukee, over 60, maybe
0: 50.
4: Yeah, at least 70 percent, 60 percent, 60 percent from Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. Milwaukee. And the majority of um, those young men are African-American. So and then I think that what's also been interesting, and Charlene can talk about this a little bit as well, is uh, since the the. I don't know, publicity conversations about the abuses and the harm that was taking place within Lincoln Hills and Copper Lake, one of the things that some counties did was they actually stopped sending their youth to Lincoln Hills in order for to avoid... Um, that. So the population sort of decreased in Lincoln Hills and Copper Lake to some degree as well because there were counties like Rock County and Dane who were reticent to send youth to uh, Lincoln Hills and Copper Lake. Um, so in some ways, the reduction in that population is, is not necessarily because of cross-the-board reforms, but just as a sort of um, response to the set of circumstances that were being experienced by other youth within um, Lincoln Hills. So that's it in brief. I mean, you can, Charlene, if you'd like
0: to add to the numbers or the population.
2: Yeah, or what brought them there and how long they spend in
0: in those facilities. Absolutely. Um, So what we're talking about is far, um, there's a cross range of um, situations that bring young people to Lincoln Hills and Copper Lake. There are some extreme examples as far as young people um, carjacking, for example. They've changed that offense uh, to now um, deem a young person as what they call a serious juvenile offender. Uh, Wisconsin is one of probably nine states now that has a very distinct status for um, particular crime that some young people do and they put them in a separate category and I'll talk a little bit more about you know the reason why there's this why that's important um, is because they're creating a separate facility specifically for young people that are deemed serious juvenile offenders Um, and and it ranges from that to a young person, um, a young lady uh, that may run away from home, for example, um, or run away from shelter care, uh, because the judge wants to, because we have very limited options and the judge wants to keep her safe, he'll lock her up in prison. And 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 we know young people there currently right now, they didn't commit a crime, they didn't hurt anyone, um, but because they, they're running, particularly when young people are running away, they're running away from something, right? And um, the only way to keep them safe because again, there's no alternatives, viable alternatives, um, young people are getting locked up. Um, and it's really interesting because once young people are committed to the Department of Correction, they can decide whether to keep a young person longer. They may say, "Oh, uh, they haven't they need more time." Um, they may have had infractions, again, which has nothing to do why they're there in the first place, and the young person can continue to be extended over and over again. Did you want to add anything?
3: Um, so I know the question was directed around mostly the back end of the system after they see the judge and they're looking at placement. Um, I wanted to add a little to what Erica shared about the broader arc of, um, youth justice and reform. So prior to the eighties, when the super predator and war on drugs and three strikes and tough on crime and all of those things came out, the most common face of a youth going through the justice system was a runaway white, uh, young woman. Um, and you know, when the 80s came and all of, through policy, and practice change and budget investment, within one decade there was a 100% shift in the face of who was going into the system. And so, um, as Erica mentioned, crime has gone down you know, consistently since then. Um, there was a big set of reform efforts. There was a, multiple reform efforts uh, around the country um, that largely benefited white youth, um, and it's, it's a lot of youth of color that are left languishing in the system. So after 20 years of reform, the political will to want to continue reform, especially if you're in a county that went from, say, 300 youth in your detention hall down to maybe 120, you might feel like you've actually done the hard, heavy lift of reform. And so a lot of juvenile halls, the detention numbers went down, um, uh, but... Uh, largely, it was white youth that benefited from that reform. The youth of color that were left, um, you know, a lot of the federal resources that were funding reform efforts have also started to dwindle. Um, and there is a, a narrative or a belief that, well, wow, if we did this reform, and these are black and brown kids are left in, well, maybe they need to actually still be in there. And so it's actually really hard to look at shift and 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 the system itself to note um, that. Uh, We believe that the the justice system was created intentionally as a system for racialized social control. So it isn't just haphazard that youth of color ended up in these systems, it was pretty calculated when you actually look at the data and the population numbers. Um, And so um, the systems were built um, uh, uh, treating uh, youth and communities of color differently from the very beginning from the facilities, um, that youth were held in. White youth often got training schools and black youth were, were trained to herd cattle. Um, young Asian women were trained on how to become better housewives or, um, marry an American, uh, you know, marry an American and, and raise a family. Um, Latino youth, uh, and Native youth, um, were brought to boarding, Native youth were brought to boarding schools. Both communities, there was a lot of, um, medical experiments, sterilization, the belief that they were feeble-minded and that they couldn't be reformed. And so this is the history of the system that was actually built as some would say, it's, it's actually functioning the way that it was created. And so when we talk about Lincoln Hills closing or uh, and what are we gonna do next, um, we have to look at something deeper than reform and tools and technology, but actually transformation um, and, and dare I say, abolition, um, how we might actually uh, create better well-being for our communities and our families.
2: Thank you so much for that overview. Can you, Tracy, can I go back to you for a second? I'm, I'm curious if you can talk about are we seeing these transformational approaches in other states? I mean, where kind of does Wisconsin's, uh, you know, some people might call them reforms, the overhaul of the youth justice system in Wisconsin, how does that compare to efforts in other
3: states? Well, um, I think there are more and more states that are looking at decarcerating and closing state youth prisons. It's been... You know, I know Texas went through a process. California shut down the youth authorities, um, but I think a uh, you know there's a struggle. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of the state institutions that youth were being held in in California. Um, were shut down, but we did a study to actually see, you know, the strategy for that is, like, we wanted to bring our kids back home to our own homes, not just closer to our home in a local prison, but back to families' own homes um, where they're in a supportive network of of family and community. Um, But uh, what we found is that even closing these large uh, facilities um, there wasn't much of a shift in actual kids coming back to their own homes. And so we saw it sort of as a shell game. You went from several large facilities to several more smaller facilities that were maybe closer to home and easier to get to, but still having a child out of home in an out-of-home placement um, in a secured facility with locks and bars and, and guards, and 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 that um, we believe that the best way to get to public safety is actually through well-being. That if kids have everything that they need, uh, good schools, uh, safe parks to play in, they can go, you know, learn how to play the violin. That that's the best way to actually achieve public safety, not um, more police, more prisons. And so I think um, states have struggled. Um, If litigation is what brought uh, the movement, um, that's not necessarily a a set of willing decision makers. Um, It might be some federal oversight like in the state of Wisconsin. And so um, we've seen some promising shifts um, in... Uh, in New York and and in Washington D.C. and I'm, Charlene will share a little bit more later, um, but it's it's really been a struggle to look at um, also how to make sure the dollars and the cost savings make it back into reinvesting into communities. So. Often when they close a prison or they close pods in in local facilities, um, the county is disconnected enough where they continue to fund at the same rate. And so the resources that actually need to go back out into community to replenish neighborhoods um, that have been starved of resources for so long, um, the money doesn't actually make it out. Um, The facilities and the other traditional options are gone and the money languishes within these big bureaucratic systems. And so a lot of the county dollar, I think about 84 cents on every dollar in the county goes towards bureaucracy and about 14 cents makes it back to the community itself. And so it's a real struggle when you say we need more families are in need young people are in need it's a lot of the reasons that gets them wrapped up in the system in the first place and if there isn't also a shift in the resources back it's really going to be a challenge and um, communities of color there's a cultural component because it's really black and brown youth that are in the system and so the alternatives have to look different than the last 20 years of reform. I want
2: to jump back to Wisconsin specifically for a second. And Charlene, I want to throw this question to you because in 2017, you helped launch Youth Justice for Milwaukee to push for community alternatives to to incarceration. Erica, feel free to weigh weigh in on this as well, but do you see closing Lincoln Hills and Copper Lake as a step in the right direction for the state?
0: So absolutely, closing a facility that have been so abusive to young people when you think about it, a young person that has done something wrong, um, just really quick, you know, for the audience, um, by a show of hands, you think back to when when you were younger, who did something that could have gotten you arrested? Okay, right? Now, just generally, we grow up, we look back and be like, man, I did some stupid things when I was a kid, right? That's that immaturity, and you know we we look at research and talk about brain development, and we look at how we treat young people um, today. It is not the way that a young person should be treated when they do something. A young person should be um, loved um, and poured into, uh, and their full po- you know and their full potential to be looked at. And what happens is, you know, with this current where we are today with the current legislation, even though it did one main thing, which was close down Lincoln Hills, which is what we were fighting for, one thing that it didn't do was put money and resources into programs and the things that young people needed. That's the one of the main things that it didn't do. So did we move a step in the right direction? Absolutely. Closing down um, Lincoln Hills and Copper Lakes, yes, is one of the things that we wanted it to do. However, um, they didn 't take the time to say okay let 's look at what we need to do before Lincoln Hills and Copper Lakes is closed down let 's look at the reform efforts that need to happen they What happened is they you know thought of you know what let 's close down this big institutional model and build smaller institutional models and it wasn 't best practices and we fought and we fought and we fought, and um, to no avail, millions and millions of dollars were put into building more facilities, right? When people, you know, the saying goes when you um, put lipstick on a pig, guess what? It's still a pig, right? So the same instance in this case is that we're not necessarily doing anything transformative. We're just saying, okay, instead of having young people far away from home in these institutionalized settings, we're going to put them closer to home in, in institutionalized settings. We've provided research around um, what New York did what New York did was amazing with their close to home model um, and how it uh, how they're literally homes that are in communities that where the young people are coming from. Guess what? When young people are going to go back home, they're going to go back into their communities. And we have to do our job in making sure that we support them in the best way so that when they go back, they understand the dis. They understand the decisions that were made. They, um, they, we can keep them close to their family. We can keep those connections to the community. We still have quite a ways to go.
4: Can I, I would just yeah. like to add to sort of an overall point that <coughs> Charlene's making, and that is I think um, Lincoln Hills and Copper Lake, um, there were folks like Charlene and others who were advocating for a long time for that institution and those institutions to close down. However, I do not think it was out of a motivation to reform the system that it closed down. It was the result of a lawsuit for abuses, pepper spray, solitary confinement of essentially children, <laughs> right? So, the, so it, it became an urgent response to pass legislation to shut it down. Consequently... There weren't all the people at the table that needed to be there in order to create the alternatives and the new system. So I think where we're sitting here, and the reason that the three of us are sitting up here now is because we have another opportunity of which... there's, yes, Act 185 is on its way. There are pieces that are already a done deal, but it doesn't mean that there is not a transformative opportunity in the future that people in the audience and other people that care about youth justice can participate in. Because I think, yes, there are things that, we, we will talk about maybe more in depth about where it's headed in terms of building smaller facilities, potentially closer to home. But that doesn't mean that we have to stop the conversation or check off the box, but rather what we need to do is extend the conversation to how we invest resources. What is coming back into the community? How is it a, culturally relevant, um, you know, applying a racial equity lens to the next phase for the state of Wisconsin. And it shouldn't just necessarily end here, I think. And that's, you know, what you were getting at as well.
0: And if I can add to even just the cost, right? Currently, right now, it costs $144,000 to house one young person at Lincoln Hills and Copper Lake, $144,000. Next year, it's going to surpass two hundred thousand dollars to house one young person. We have young people that are, um, based on some of their needs, their, fa- their that their families are facing, um, home equ- um, housing equity or inequity, right? What can, what do you think we can possibly do to support a family with one hundred and forty-four thousand dollars a year? I'm sure you all have some great ideas. This podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences. Join the Madison based team working to lead earlier cancer detection. Visit exactsciences.com to view the company's hundreds of open jobs.
2: So, over the last year, After Democratic Governor Tony Evers took office, we've seen some changes to to the original plan to close Lincoln Hills and Copper Lake. Lawmakers passed what's called a trailer bill to Act 185 to clean up some of the language in that initial law to close the prisons. What that largely did is delay the timeline for closing the facilities by six months to summer 2021 and give the counties a little bit more time to submit applications to the state to run their facilities. Meanwhile, Governor Tony Evers in his budget sought to direct more money towards those replacement facilities, which would include county run buildings and um, other facilities for more serious juvenile offenders um, called type one facilities. So I, I think it's really important now to kind of give an overview of a more in-depth overview of what's really going on, what these replacement facilities look like. Um, could you two tag team that for us and uh, just kind of fill in the gaps of, of what's happening here and what this new system new system will look like?
0: Yeah. Um, let me start really quick. So three three different pieces that I I need you all to understand. So when Lincoln Hills Copper Lake closes, um, counties were able to put in proposals. This was supposed to be a statewide um, model, right, in Wisconsin, where counties say, oh, we want to build a secure residential care center for children. Oh, we want to build one. And when folks really started digging in, they realized, like, wait, wait a minute, you're just giving us money to create another infrastructure, another facility, and you're not going to give us any money to operate it? Hold on a second. And so... Counties, Some counties that put in proposals literally rescinded them. They took them back and said, you know what, thank you, but no thank you. Some counties realized that we can't afford this, right? And so um, four entities, four counties ended up um, fi- um, submitting proposals. One was Milwaukee, Racine, um, Brown County, um, and um, Dane. So you have, and and if you think about where those are, think about you know you have i mean they're clustered except for um brown county that's the outlier for all the proposals that were submitted and so again when you think about the the structure that was created we kind of told people to do something that was really really difficult and didn't provide any um um, options or flexibility. Okay. So that was a secure residential care center. The The second part of that, um, bill was, all right, we're going to put money into creating, um, a, what is called a type one facility. That's the, you know, another very secure looks like what, you know, it's, it's just smaller, um, barbed wire. I mean, it's very secure, very secure space. Um, that they were looking, that's the type one facility for the serious juvenile offenders. They were looking to create up to, originally, they were looking to create about four of those. Okay. Now think about the numbers. There's about 150 young people right now currently at Lincoln Hills and Copper Lake. All right. The number, Milwaukee is looking, just throwing out some numbers. Dane is looking to do about 22 young people. Milwaukee is looking to do 32 Um, Racine, um, is looking to do 36, um, and I think, uh, Brown is very, 30, 36, um, 32, something like that, right? So we add up those numbers, including with the type one, um, each of them, we're going to be up to about 36 young people. Now they're settled on, maybe, maybe we'll have two. The third piece of that is Mendota. Mendota is our, um... Um youth mental health facility. It's a secured facility. It's a co-located facility with young people and adults. Currently, right now, there are 29 beds at Mendota. They're looking to increase it by 69. Okay. They're going to, yet yeah, not. They're going to increase it by 69 beds. And we're sitting here like, okay. Give us the data that said if 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 we say crime is going down, you know, count a lot of counties are doing um, are being very creative. They're using alternatives. You have a county like Racine that said, "No, we're no longer sending young people to Lincoln Hills and Copper Lake." They've decided to do some more, some very different things, some different approaches. So we just didn't understand why there was this influx on, why is it that we're now creating these very, very secure spacing, increasing, not decreasing, but increasing the footprints of corrections?
4: Mm -hmm. I mean, I was going to say, I mean, in theory, the hope was that over time, as we've continued to demonstrate over the last three decades, that the population itself would be decreasing. Not to mention, if we're aware of the Lincoln Hills, if we have another 2022 now closing. The population is going to even be smaller, but simultaneously building
3: <laughs>
4: more space for more youth. So um, the two don't match up, right? They don't fit very well together. Our ambition to have better reform, keep more youth out of a secure setting, and yet simultaneously creating the structures and spending the money to build these uh, secure settings. Um, so, and I think that. Uh, you know, one of the pieces of Mendota that is um, being discussed um, is the fact that it's cur- it has historically only served boys. And so now it's going to be um, uh, a facility that will also serve young women. The question becomes... how? So we're building more beds. Where where are we going to spend the resources to train the providers and the folks within Mendota to actually be as well-equipped as they can to work with young women or, for that matter, LGBTQ youth? And this is a whole discussion that's not even taking place about how we meet those services for um, uh, that population. And I think that, um, again, it's a secure facility, For young women and one of the problems is is that the state of Wisconsin has very few facilities that are appropriate for young girls so the we don't have the data on it but there is qualitative conversations about the fact that we send a lot of young women out of the state so talk about being closer to home we're talking about girls uh, and young girls in Tennessee in facilities because we can't meet the needs of that population. And so that has to be part of the conversation, too, as we talk about what are we, you know, once these buildings get built or it's an inevitable, um, you know, trajectory with respect to the brick and mortar piece, we have to have a parallel conversation about the resources and the money that is invested in meeting the needs of the youth, including not sending them out of state. So when are we going to have that conversation for those young women? And then when are we going to have the conversation about, uh, which Charlene can talk about too, about the necessity of having an SJO classification for youth that p- sends them to this um, facility? Um, you know, and maybe talking about being transformative in. in um, not having that disposition as a serious juvenile offender that puts you in a um, facility that, for potentially years that is um, extraordinarily secure and confining.
2: I want to jump in real quick with this audience question. Um, There's a question about non-binary youth. Is that part of the discussion at all about how to place them in facilities and accommodate
0: their needs? Yes, Um, and thank you so much for that question. Um, That is another battle, uh, that um, or in another conversation that still has yet to be had uh, young people that um, so and, and so how we currently do it based on um, your gender at birth that is the spaces that um, they're going to uh, put you in so we we do not even have any um, sort of different infrastructure um, for non-binary youth, um, LGBTQ young people, uh, we we still have a lot further to go with that conversation. And Eric, I don't know if you have any insight on that, but Tracy.
3: Yeah, I think um, for LGBT youth, especially non-binary and, and trans youth, uh, it becomes an issue uh, based off, uh, a lot of systems go off of your actual physiological, biological, um, your sex, not your gender identity. Mm-hmm. And so oftentimes uh, young people uh, are housed in facilities that don't actually match their gender identities um, they're told for safety reasons uh, that they, they need to be in solitary, and oftentimes their needs aren't met. They're, you know, isolated. I'm I mean, not familiar with the practices here, but just generally across the board. I do know that there are federal guidelines around uh, PREA, the prison uh, rape elimination act but there's little capacity to enforce that and lgbtu particularly non-binary and trans youth um, often are a very invisible population um, and are thrown in with the small number of young women also Um, they're coming to the system for very different needs most of the time um, than some of the the black and brown boys um, coming in and so their service needs look a lot different Um, and often they're criminalized um, for um, uh, a, a lot of history of of um, victimization and traumas and and um, I, I, I did can I can I go back to I just wanted to back the lens out from the tree to the forest a little bit Uh, and the notion of, you know, I know that this conversation is focused on the back end, right, after they see the judge and where the placement is, but it's actually a much bigger issue to look at um, and would just say, imagine a a boat, right, out on the lake, these beautiful lakes here in Madison, Um, and imagine a gaping hole in that boat, and then there's all this white water flooding, and imagine the water is the children, right? So the Lincoln Hills and Copper Lake, is a campaign that's dealing with the kids that have flooded into this boat. But what we know is that that gaping hole at the front, that's the front door of the system right here in everybody's counties. And each of the counties, um, starting with Milwaukee, Racine, uh, Dane County, and then Brown County, um, these are the counties that that have the worst racial and ethnic disparities for the state. And so imagine, um, we're thinking about where to bucket these kids from the boat out to Right. But if we never stop the gaping hole, it's going to be it's Lincoln Hills this year. What is it going to be in the next decade and the decade after that? And so already at the front door, there's disparate treatment for youth of color and it gets more disparate the deeper you go in. And so reasonably at the county level, there's a greater responsibility to actually get a grip on who's going in the system. So example for Milwaukee County, the the biggest contributor to the local jail is the probation department, and it's mostly for technical violations, uh, warrants, and violations of probation. What what that really means is it's not a new law law violation, is they disobeyed an or a court order, they pissed an adult off, they didn't go to where they were told to go to. And I don't mean to trivialize it, but the, the, there's a really defining factor of they disobeyed a rule versus it's an actual law violation from the penal code. Um, and and so. Uh, for, for youth, about half of the local detention hall in Milwaukee County was black youth with warrants. And, and most of those warrants were coming from uh, electronic monitoring violation of coming in too late or not calling or being outside of your bounds or whatever. Um, and, and in Milwaukee County, which contributes the largest amount of kids to the state facility, um, they detained black youth at a rate of 15 times that of their white counterparts and that's five times the national average. And so if that's where you're starting from, the back end of Lincoln Hills and what to do instead is only part of the conversation. And so if community, we're really gonna be able to get a grip on it, we, we not only have to extend to that very front door of the system, but all of the other youth and family serving institutions who've been, their budgets have been decimated around the 90s, where did that money come from? That went into the jails? It came from mental health and health. It came from, right, it came from all of these services that were supposed to help child welfare, education. This is where they pulled the money from and it never went back, right? And so now we're talking about a process of re-getting these resources back out, but it's nearly impossible because of a lot of government is not set up to um, budget in a way that, that considers well being, there's a lot of inefficiencies. You might have five departments that run the same program for the same two neighborhoods and the same 30 families. So, on the surface, it might look like they're getting one program paid for, but actually, when you layer it, it's million, upwards of millions or more dollars per youth and family that are actually being spent. And so again, like Charlene said, what would a family be able to do with a million point two dollars? I I you
4: know? also think, and Charlene and both of you can speak to this better than I can. But I think one of the the things we need to be better at, and this is the work of Tracy and Charlene in particular, is asking the youth because many m- somewhere in this process before they got to these facilities. A, I would argue an adult failed them in some respects because they didn't ask them, what is your circumstance? Why are you here? Why did you, um, you know, behave this way? Um, as opposed to the approach has been like, what's wrong with you? Here's the punishment. Not that there's a source of that. If we spent more time asking and getting feedback on what could have been done differently before these youth ended up in these facilities, we'd have fewer youth in these facilities and we'd be better able to, I think, address um, some of the drivers into them. Um, so I I think it's resources I think it's community investment I think we have to think more on the front end for sure um you know but we, advocates and uh, we often get stuck still arguing the back end when you know as years and years go on and we and folks are still making the same argument about you know uh, a place where we should be further up, right? And we should be having the discussion more openly and more robustly about non-binary LGBTQ youth, youth of color that are in the system, and the resources that they need before they go in, and and asking them and their families, you know, what what is the lever here? What was the trigger point? So we can do better as a community.
2: Thank you all for addressing that because we got quite a few questions about the whole pipeline too and and this just provided a nice overview of what all of the different components of this. Um, I do want to focus, we, we got another question too that I was actually planning on asking, so great minds think alike, um, about kind of the 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 plan to close and replace Lincoln Hills and, and Copper Lake specifically. Um, I, I guess I want to kind of open it up to whoever is interested in, in talking about this, but is, is this truly a statewide plan, given the fact that Applications for county-run facilities are coming from, you know, southeastern Wisconsin. Yeah, to what extent is is this a statewide fix to or a statewide plan to overhaul
0: the the system? Um, I'll just jump in. Um, it, it's not a statewide fix at all. Um, when we start, when we when we really put resources to where they're needed. That's when it's going to become a statewide fix, right? Um, when we start to say, "You know what, instead of um, looking at um, a building that's going to solve that, that folks are going to think are is going to solve our youth justice um, problem, um, that's where that's where we have it wrong. Uh, there are many, many more ways that we can spend dollars that are proven to be more effective. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. The research, it's already been done. Folks across the country have already been doing the work. We're just. We just need to learn from it and say, "Oh, let's try that here. Let's use those options here. Let's divert and um, put money into areas that is going to make an impact. That's going to decrease recidivism. That's going to provide young people with the tools um, that they need in order to um, um, in, in order to th- um, thrive." Right. So the problem we have a problem now when people think that. Putting money into a building is going to fix our problem, but we still have a ways to go where we need to divert those dollars, and it has to be bipartisan. Folks have to come together across the aisle in order for that to happen. Do
2: give you a weigh in on that
4: as well? Well, I think that what's interesting is that um, it was supposed to be a statewide solution that was focused on buildings, but then we didn't. Uh, you know, there's a whole uh, northern tribal community yes. who has particular needs for their youth, what is just not part of this. Um there's the western part of the state. I mean, you know, right now it's what five hours to Lincoln Hills. From from, Mo-
0: from Milwaukee it's about four.
4: Yeah, and maybe about four and a half from here. You know, so even if, if you have a kid on the western side and now you're going to I mean it's the same it's the same difference. And I think the I, I would argue that one of the things that has the potential to be a statewide model that was part of Act 185, I believe, um, was the necessity for um, folks to create a Wisconsin model for juvenile uh, justice or youth justice. And that was what um, stakeholders and legislators and um, Department of Corrections and others were suppo- are charged with doing. And part of that is having community voice and being inclusive. And I can't remember all the bullet points off the other parts of the model, but that is where now I think the real next phase of the work is and the linchpin is because then that is the charge, okay? We have what we have in terms of... The, the, the structures, the brick and mortar, but then where do we go with like really creating a Wisconsin model that's specific to us and our needs as a state, and then moving forward to implement that, that it encompasses a much more um, uh, transformative, uh, progressive, responsive system, um, as opposed to one that is sort of focused on the punitive.
3: Um... So, you know, I I think uh, we, I I want to talk a little bit about the need to shift from reform to transformation, because I think the idea of the Wisconsin model is more of looking at transformative. And mm-hmm. so sometimes these words, they're very sexy, and people right, like right, to right. throw them around. And so <laughs> for us, you know, we, we want to make a comparison, right? Mm-hmm. We know that Prisons are are the grandchild of the enslavement of, of African people, right? Even by the 13th Amendment and the letter of the law is an extension of slavery. And that when we think about slavery in terms of reform versus abolition, uh, it'd be really hard to talk about reforming slavery, right? You'd have a, a kinder slave owner or... And so we think of the prison system a little similarly as like, well, we can have a kinder... You know, like as they say, like a, a cage with teddy bear, teddy bears and carpet, or, or the lipstick on the pig. Um, and but there are some really pra- practical challenges to transformation for for systems aside from political will and, and money. Um, one, the notion, and, and I want to share just four conundrums, and I'll be quick because I know we got a lot of. Um, Um, knowledge. So one, that justice is colorblind and race neutral, um, thereby negating the necessity to address policies and practices that reflect racialized social control. So if you look at the picture of Lady Liberty, right? She's got the blindfold on. What's she holding? Scales of justice. What else is she holding? A sword. So if the justice system is colorblind, then why are we having specific initiatives around racial and ethnic disparities? It's a conundrum to think of when the system denies that something is existing and also is working feverishly, supposedly, to try and fix it. Two, that investment in impacted communities um, is outside the justice sector purview, and divestment is a structural issue that is larger than the justice system can handle alone. So it's not like probation and courts and law enforcement, DA, with their own budgets and their own, even connected as a a system, a, a system that nobody's technically in charge of um, that uh, divestment that 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 notion of justice reinvestment requires more than just the departments of uh, the different sectors of the justice system itself but actually engaging the full governmental apparatus right the county um, what we've often seen is when they close these facilities or re- uh, close pods or reduce um, bed numbers that the the, that the county um, the county government continues to fund these uh, departments at the same rate. And so it actually doesn't go back out into community, which leads into the third one. Government is not structured to promote cross-sector responses to complex human service problems that involve public safety. The actual structure of how government, is, the departments are lined up and how budgets are allocated, um, oftentimes there's very autonomous siloed sets of budgets that might have duplicative services. Um, So an example would be a needle exchange program. You might have 12 needle exchange programs in the city, one that's under public health, one that's under substance abuse, one that's under youth and family support, right? They're all applying for separate budgets that can't, can't be moved around. But when you actually calculate and look at the the service area and the families that are being served, it's an astronomical amount of money. It's not just the cost of the program, but it's the layered of the services from the multiple departments that are serving that particular family. And so when you're looking at where to find the money, the government structure itself is not actually typically not able to accommodate what we would call a well-being budget. How to actually make sure that money comes out of uh, the public safety part, which for any county is about 40 to 60% of your whole county budget. It's why there aren't resources for things like community programs, alternatives to detention. And then lastly, um, it's difficult for electeds and appointeds to share power. These folks in the, um, you know, in, in the county government, city government, state um, share power with each other and with impacted communities that are most in need of human service interventions and, and these sorts of resources and services. So there's some real practical challenges just in the way that things are structured, even if you have the will and and as erica so eloquently shared this was not a coalition of the willing or a set of willing partners it was it was forced through a litigation strategy
2: mm-hmm. i'm going to talk now really briefly because our time is almost up we did start a little bit late so i'm going to use those extra 5 minutes <laughs> but i wanted to transition now and talk about you know where we should be going and there are quite a few audience questions on this but a lot of them are in the same kind of thread or theme so i guess what i where to start? Um, let's go back to you, Tracy, and talk about um, one audience question is, you know, is there an approach that we should be emulating in
3: Wisconsin that a different state is taking? Oh, I'll say a couple things, but um, pass it quickly to Charlene, because <laughs> she's actively doing it and creating plans um, for her county. Um, I think uh, the notion of credible messengers is, is spreading. Um, what we mean by that is people who have lived experience um, and who have been previously incarcerated or previously been through the justice system, um, and th- they're in a position, uh, the messenger matters in terms of who works with young people. And a study after study shows that the number one factor that would save a kid from having to go in and out of the system is a trusted relationship with an adult that can help them. So you can have all these fancy program models, but at the heart of it, it's someone that they can rely on, count on, and trust. And someone who also is knowledgeable about how to navigate a youth with a record and system involvement through that same system. And so, um, uh, some of the more innovative, uh, work that we've seen when they've shifted and created these alternatives to incarceration is actually engaging folks who've had that lived experience in helping fix, um, Uh, helping be the solution. We've also, um, uh, as CGNY, um, in the last two years pulled together a cohort of 12 uh, community-based organizations that were run by people of color that are providing alternatives to incarceration for medium and high-scoring youth. So these are the youth, but for these programs would be sent to a Lincoln Hills, right? Um, And so we're learning a lot from them, but there's some consistencies in what they're providing. One, that this organization they serve the whole family not just the young person too that the staff is reflective of the young people that are coming into the system and um that they have a familiarity with the community and all of the services that are around um that they sort of have a no dead ends practice of well it's it's not like uh well uh you know i know that i'm here for mental health but i also am trying to get into college you know oh well we don't do that but these programs will go to the ends of the earth no matter what the need of the kid and the family is. So they center that youth and family and they follow them beyond the purview of the court. And so these community based partnerships are crucial because the, the kid is, go, ha, they have to let the kid go out of the system at some point. They have to let him go. And um, when the community, these community based um, programs and services and supports are going to follow that youth and family well beyond their court involvement. And so it's one of the few things when you talk about the revolving door of kids going in and out, you have to have an anchor in their local community, not a program that's parachuting in from the west side. and they actually have to be relevant for the community that's there. Mm-hmm.
0: So I want to just um list off a few things just really briefly um where 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 we can go, okay, so again. This is based on what other folks across the country, this is not rocket science. This is based on what folks across the country has seen to be proven and effective, all right? So some of the things that we need to do here um, in Wisconsin. Number one, build a continuum of community based services. Th- those were some of the things that um, Tracy talked about. We're talking about pulling together different governmental agencies, behavioral health, mental health, child welfare, substance abuse, edu- pulling all those folks together and building this continuum, right, of um, support services that's going to, and each county might be different based on their population. For indigenous youth, they might have indigenous practice that they want to build in. So it has to be culturally um, responsible Responsive, all right. So building a continuum of community based services <clears throat> Two, transfer oversight um, of um, of sentenced youth from the Department of Corrections to the Department of Children and Families. Many, um, I don't know if everyone knows that, you know, currently right now, the young people that are at Lincoln Hills are under the Department of um, Corrections. Uh, We know the Department of of Corrections is not equipped. They're not a youth organization. They're not equipped to work with young people. That's okay. Let's put them back um, into an entity because with the previous passage of, um, what is it, the, uh, the, the Juvenile Justice Code in 1995, uh, young people were under the Wisconsin Department of Health Services. So what we're saying is that young people, because DCF, they know young people, they work with young people all the time, we think that um, that oversight needs to be shifted. Number three, um, increase family and youth involvement. We have to make families and young people central to the work um, that we're doing. We cannot, um, you know, who knows their young person best? Uh, mom, Dad. Grandma, grandpa, right? An aunt or an uncle that that young person is more connected with. they should be the central part of uh, a, a young person and um, their 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 case management and um, their placement, okay? Uh, another quick one: um, Evaluate the effectiveness of GPS monitoring. A lot of times we think, you know what? You know let's just slap a monitor on a young person, and when they mess up, guess what? They're right back. Um, to these uh, really um, pu- punitive settings, we have to be able to start looking at that because, G- you know, GPS, just because they're not in a secured facility, it doesn't work. And we've done, a, um, there's a lot of research being done about the non-effectiveness of um, GPS. We have to fund prevention, that's a huge thing. That's one of the things that Tracy, you know, mentioned before, you know, though. So, yeah, you have young people that are coming into the system. But what about those young people that are outside of that, that are being funneled into the system? We have to put more effort and more um, resources into funding prevention on a statewide um, effort. Um, work to eliminate, she mentioned this as well, The race and, and, um, and Erica did as well, the racial ethnic disparities. We have to make that a central priority and a central focus uh, to, re- to eliminate, not reduce it. Some people think that, oh, well, we'll just work to reduce it. No, we need to work to um, eliminate it. And the last two things, um, uh, implement evidence-based practices uh, with fidelity. We have to, again, look at what works and what's going to work for the young people uh, that we serve um, and, and look at other people. Let's let, let's um you know visit other programs and other models that are working and bring that information back to the state so that we can implement those practices here.
2: Erica, I wanna jump in real quick yeah. and actually direct a different question oh. at you. We got this
0: from two <laughs> or three
2: people. I'm gonna ask it really quick. Yeah. What yeah. can people do now to help youth within the justice system or fight for change? And we'll wrap.
4: Oh help. Youth within the justice system fight for change. I think it's really important to um uh, understand the circumstances and elevate their voice outside of the system because there's only so much power that they can have within the system, but it's the broader community that has to elevate their needs and their voice. Um, And I think really just be, one of the things I want to say was just be really cognizant of the fact that these systems themselves are traumatizing and we're often re-traumatizing. Youth and so, just to have that lens of how the system interacts with an individual and how it interacts with a community is really, really important. And having that level of understanding and just be willing to say this is not how we should go about treating young folks and help or their their problems or their challenges um, is the way to, I think, advocate best for youth.
2: Thank you all so much. Um, thanks for coming. Sorry we went a little bit over, but enjoy the rest of IdeaFest.
1: Thanks so much for listening to Live from Cap Times IdeaFest. More episodes will be coming out shortly. In the meantime, do check out our other podcasts here at the Cap Times. Those include Wedge Issues, The Corner Table, and The Mad Splainers. You can find those and live from CapTime's Fest at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play Music, or just about anywhere else you can find podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back real soon.
0: This podcast has been brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation the makers of Colaguard. Once again, be sure to learn more at exactsciences.com.